We'll open your Bibles with me to the 67th Psalm. This will be the last Psalm that we look at uh, for some time. We'll have a, a topical sermon next week for a part of our 20th anniversary celebration. I'm being led towards a topical series that deals with renewal. I, I don't know exactly how long that will last. And when that is completed, we'll pick back up in a book of the New Testament, which has not yet been selected. But Psalm 67 is a continuation in some respects of what we looked at last week. Last week, it was the praise of our God. This week, it is just the simple title of praising God. And you could add to that for salvation, or you could leave it alone and just praising God, and it would be appropriate. And so in our reading of the Psalms and your experience in the Psalms, most of us have Psalms that come to mind when we hear phrases from them. For example, if you were to hear, the Lord is my shepherd, you would automatically think of Psalm 23 and you would probably be able to recite back a majority of that. You might hear the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and that would remind you of Psalm 14 and all that is contained there. In one of the Bible's most favorite psalms, Psalm 139, where we would hear the phrase, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and we are reminded of just how good God is and the way that He has made us. Well, when you come to Psalm 67, it isn't very popular. There are no phrases that come from it that would elicit a reminder of what Psalm 67 says or what it even means. In fact, it was surprising that many commentators spend very, very, very little time and energy into breaking out the truth of this psalm, and they seem to only give it an obligatory responsibility to write something about it, because that's what they're doing. They're writing a commentary. In fact, Martin Luther, in his voluminous five-volume work, completely ignores Psalm 67. Why would he do that? We don't know. Did he feel like it was repetition? Did he feel like it was necessary? Nobody really knows. But this is really a psalm that is called by others who have studied it, who have tried to break out its truth. They call it the missionary psalm or the evangelism psalm because of what it says in it. Now, there's no indication in the title of who wrote the psalm or when it was written, but the theme is very, very clear. These seven brief verses of Psalm 67 are almost entirely taken up with the concern that all of humanity, Israelite and non-Israelite alike, should know, acknowledge, and respond in praise for the blessing of God's salvation. So there is a non-adversarial attitude with non-Jewish nations here, which is really quite surprising. You think about the period of the conquest, when everybody who was not Israeli was an enemy. You think about after the conquest, and the kind of prideful attitude that Jews had against non-Jews, which carried even into the days of Jesus, when if you were not a Jew, you were looked down upon, you were thought to be a second-class citizen, and you really didn't matter to us as Jews, or to God as the father of the Jews. So this non-adversary relationship is very, very surprising. And it's possible that the psalmist, through the inspiration of the Spirit, has in mind the covenant that God made with Abraham all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 12. We read these words. Now the Lord God said, excuse me, the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. 
and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse who who curses you I will curse, and here's the key, and in and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so almost unanimously, commentators understand this covenant with Abraham to be an indication of the inclusion of the Gentile world into God's plan of making the nation of Israel not only great, but making them a light that would reflect the glory and the honor and the true knowledge of God that would draw all nations to him. So it appears the intention for God to bless all the families of the earth is probably in view here in Psalm 67. And of course, that blessing requires the praise and the worship of Yahweh and of Yahweh alone. So the psalm is divided into three sections. Verses 1 and 2 request God's blessing on Israel. Verses 3 through 5 call for the universal praise of Yahweh. And then verses 6 and 7 thank God for his abundant blessings. Here's what it says, Psalm 67. Verses 1 through 7. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce, God. Our God blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. So the first point in our outline is very simply this. It is the communal blessing that is communicated from the psalmist to the nation of Israel that is to be shared with all. Verse 1, God be gracious to us and bless us. And calls his face to shine upon us. So this parts of the very first verse probably call to mind something that is very familiar to you. And that would be the ironic blessing, the blessing of Aaron, or the benediction that was given by Aaron, which is recorded in Numbers chapter 6. You've heard this, I'm sure. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you. And give you peace. And so in many instances, or in many, in many ways, this calls us back to this blessing or this benediction that was uttered by Aaron, that was given by God to be a blessing upon the nation of Israel. And in the context here, it is very simply requesting God's favor. He says, be gracious and be merciful. So the picture image of God's face shining upon Israel would be an indication of his glory shining on them as opposed to his anger or his wrath. All throughout the experience of Israel, it was the glory of God that led them in all of their experiences. God led them through the wilderness by his glory, the glory of God rested over the tabernacle when they paused. The glory of the Lord appeared over Mount Sinai when God spoke to Moses. And on and on and on, it was the glory of God which shined upon the nation 
or it was known to be God's face shining upon them, which is written throughout the book of Psalms, and the reference to God's face shining, or the light of God shining upon them, is the expectation of deliverance, or redemption, or salvation. And so it is the request for God to be gracious, to be merciful, expressed through His face shining upon them, for the Lord to lift up His countenance would mean that God would be looking upon Israel with favor as opposed to looking away from them in anger or in disappointment. So in Israel's experience, they had the glory of the Lord which led them and guided them and was an indication of His favor upon them. And when they went through God's judgment or God's discipline or His wrath or went through hardship, it was like God turned out the light. They could not see His glory and they did not experience from Him the deliverance, the redemption, the salvation that they desired until they would repent and turn back to Him. So the result of this favor from God that the psalmist sought would bring peace. The hand of loving care that brings comfort to our hearts instead of the hand of discipline that brings fear to our hearts is what the psalmist is desiring on behalf of of not only the nation of Israel, but beyond that. So like a father that lovingly disciplines his children, those same hands can also bring comfort and peace. Isn't that right? When you loved your children, you would pick them up, and you would bring them close to you, and you would squeeze them tight, and you would rub their back. You might even put their head in the palm of your hand and just hold them. Isn't that right? But those same hands would bring about discipline when there was a spanking, when there was some act that communicated to this child that you loved and cared about, that their attitude, their action, their behavior was not correct, and it had to be corrected through the hands of discipline. So the same hands that bring discipline also bring comfort and peace and joy to the hearts of God's children. But you'll notice here that the request for God's favor in this psalm isn't for personal gain. It isn't for anything that would act that would actually enhance their life particularly, but this request is for universal salvation. Not universal salvation in the sense that all religious roads lead to God, but in universal salvation in the sense that all the nations around the nation of Israel could come to know him. That's exactly what it says here in verse 2. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Knowing God means knowing his ways, and knowing his ways means sharing these ways with others. I'm sure you've had conversation with people who purport to know God, but they give you some kind of an idea or some kind of an explanation about salvation that causes you to say, now wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. That's not what the Bible says at all. And so this salvation that the psalmist wants to be shared amongst all the nations is centered in actually knowing the truth 
about who God is. To know the truth about who God is means that we have to know something about God's ways. God is holy. God is righteous. God is merciful. God is compassionate. And God has provided a singular way of salvation. Those are the ways of God that the psalmist wants all the nations to know. So knowing and living by God's ways is evidence of his salvation. And this is where the praise of God in our lives finds its true source. You know, one of the great debates that has existed all throughout the days after the New Testament was written is very simply this. It is the idea of the eternal security of the believer. You say you know the Lord and let you and yet you smoke and you drink and you curse and you chase women and you lie and you cheat and you steal. That seems inconsistent with the ways of God as I know them from what the word of God says. So knowing God means that we are going to have evidence of living by his standards which then become the source of joy in our lives. It's the salvation that God makes available to us that enables us to break free from that life of waywardness into a life that finds harmony in living out the true knowledge and the true ways of God. So how much should evil, sinful mankind praise God for his gracious and merciful salvation. Is there a limit to the amount of praise that we should give to God? Is there an end to the praise that we should extend to God because of the salvation that he has given to us? We should praise him for who he is, and we should praise him for what he has done. He has mercifully saved us, and the psalmist's desire is that the mercy found in salvation would be expanded into all the nations. This is the beginning of the missionary or the evangelistic emphasis that we find in this psalm. Favor upon Israel is to result in God's salvation being made known to the non-Jewish nations by sharing his ways with them. By sharing God's ways with them, they are able to share in the knowledge of the way of salvation. Let me ask you, does this sound familiar to you? Well, it should, because this is exactly what Jesus said in the Great Commission. This is the central message of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And Jesus said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So, the heart of the Great Commission is teaching the true knowledge of God and teaching the ways of God so that people can know what real salvation actually looks like. So, when you look at somebody and says, you profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ, yet you live absolutely contradictory to everything the Bible says is consistent with the way that we are to live, I have to call into question this profession of faith that you've made. 
But when we see someone who lives a life that reflects the ways of God and expresses the true knowledge of God, we find consistency with them and the way that we strive to live our lives as those who have been redeemed. The heart of the gospel message, the heart of the Great Commission, is go and teach others the ways of God so that they can come and know Him, so that they can come to praise Him, and that they will come to find His favor. So the favor of God is experienced through the gift of salvation, since God chooses to deal graciously with us, giving us what we do not deserve, and giving to us what we cannot earn on our own. This gracious gift of salvation is what brings the peace of the ironic benediction or the ironic blessing that we looked at in Numbers chapter 6. This universal salvation will result in universal praise. This is really the heart of the psalm. What is at the beginning and what is at the end is hinged upon what we read in these middle verses. Let's read verse 3 and the beginning part of verse 4. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So universal praise is the result of salvation. So think about this. During the period of Israel's conquest, when they knew something about the powerful God of Israel, who was wiping out all of the surrounding nations, why would they want to praise this God who was on the verge of wiping them out? Well, it was because this gracious God was going to give to them the ability to know who He is and was going to make His way of salvation known to them. The Jews were God's chosen people, but they weren't to selfishly cling to the knowledge of God. They were to share it with others. Other nations would then have the ability to accept or to reject. If they rejected it, then this God was going to deal with them justly. And if they chose to accept it, then this God of Israel was going to deal with them graciously. The sharing of this knowledge would result in the salvation of these nations, and they, like the Jews, would sing the praises of God. This is a very forward-looking and a very forward-thinking part of the Psalms, because I don't know that the Jews of this day actually understood the implications of the covenant that God made with Abraham, and this perpetuated all the way through to the days of Jesus himself. So we are glad and we sing for joy because we know the one true God and because we are known by him. Every non-Jewish person that worships God through faith in Jesus Christ has made the central theme of this psalm come true. Americans today, Canadians, South Americans, Chinese, Russians, whomever it is, these non-Jewish nations have made the central theme of this psalm true today because we who are not Jewish by our birth are singing the praise of God because we have true knowledge of Him, we understand His ways, and we have been blessed by this gracious gift of salvation that is communicated to us by Him. People from every tribe and every nation are praising God for the gift 
of salvation. Now also we see mixed in with the psalm is his righteous judgment. The latter part of verse 4. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. So when we hear the word judgment here, it always brings to our minds a very negative connotation, does it not? We think judgment is bad because we don't like to be judged by anyone for anything. We don't like to be judged for the way we dress or the way we do our hair or the food we eat or the beverages that we drink or the movies that we like or the books that we read or the way that we choose to decorate our house. We don't want to be judged by anybody. We don't like judgment. When you hear that the boss has called you in because he wants to quote-unquote judge the quality of your work, fear, trepidation, sweat, nausea, all those things in it, because we don't like judgment. Nobody likes judgment. But in reality, in the context of our psalm, judgment really has a positive connotation. Why? Because God judges with uprightness or righteously. God doesn't judge arbitrarily. He doesn't call you in for judgment because he's got a bone to pick or an axe to grind or he's got a political motivation for getting you out of the way because a buddy of his would really like that job, right? That's not the way God does it. God judges righteously. His judgment is always perfect. It cannot be manipulated. It is never tainted and it is never enacted with any sense of an inappropriate intention. God always judges righteously and uprightly. The problem isn't with God's righteous judgment. The problem is with man's inability to live up to his righteous standard. So what is man left to do? Well, our desire is to change the standards by which God chooses to judge. When we do that, then God's judgment is no longer righteous. It's no longer upright. It has devolved into what man thinks or what man desires or in accord with man's philosophies. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. We don't get to choose what is a part of God's righteous judgment. So in the context of this psalm, I believe that God's judgment is related to the salvation that he provides and that the nations will praise him for because in God's righteous and in God's just judgment, we aren't judged by our works, but we are instead judged by the receiving of the grace that God extends to us. He judges our salvation righteously We live out our salvation righteously by loving Him and obeying Him and repenting when we've sinned and submitting in the areas where we have rebelled. These are the indications of a life that has been saved, of a life that desires to live under the favor and under the blessing of God. We aren't saved because of what we do, but what we do indicates that we have been saved. The unregenerate, 
do not love God. They do not obey God. They do not repent of sin. They are unwilling to submit to his ways. They have no God consciousness in their life. They have no desire to live underneath God's standards. And so when they are judged, they will not sing the praises of God like the psalmist intends for us to do. They will instead stand before God's righteous judgment with an understanding that they did not know God. They have completely missed his ways and they cannot be covered by God's blessings of mercy and grace poured out amongst the people who have chosen to love him and to follow him. If you and I are in Christ then we are not judged based upon what we do. We are judged based upon who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This speaks of our positional righteousness as a child of God, covered by the blood of Christ. God judges righteously, and He guides people on the earth as a loving shepherd providing for His flock, leading them to the way of salvation. Think about it like this. If the enemies of Israel's days would stop to listen to the ways of God and to the purposes and plans of God, to extend his hands of loving care to them. And all it takes for you to be a part of my family is that you would love me and obey me and follow me. I wonder how differently it would have worked out for those nations. But God judges righteously. He loves and guides as a shepherd providing for his flock, leading them to the way of salvation. Exactly as Psalm 23 would say. He leads us in the paths of righteousness. He leads us to places of spiritual nourishment. He leads us to places of rest and peace and provision. And we being rebellious in our unregenerated sinful nature throw off the provisions of God to choose to live as we desire, as we see fit. And this keeps us in a position of being an enemy of God, not able to sing the praises of salvation because we have rejected Him. So the result of this salvation, the result of God's righteous judgment, of his leading us and the way that he does, brings about another call for the praise of God resulting or resulted from his salvation. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Now the psalmist didn't repeat this here because he had, had an obligation to fill up some unused space or to make the number of words fit from top to bottom. He did so because these words reflect a heart that is overflowing with joy as a result of God's gift of salvation. It wasn't enough to say it once. It had to be repeated a second time. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It is an awareness of God's greatness It speaks of a personal connection to His grace. It reflects a love for His provision. And it expresses a desire to humble ourselves and to submit ourselves in giving to God what it is that He is thoroughly deserving of, and that is our praise.
all our praise, all our love, all our devotion is expressed in what God has made available to us in this salvation. Now, the third part of our psalm here is the abundant blessing. Verses 6 and 7. The earth has yielded its produce, God. Our God blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. Now, verse 6 brings about a translation challenge that is apparent depending upon what version of the Scripture you are reading from. So here's what we find in the psalm as a whole. In the psalm as a whole, all of the Hebrew verbs are expressed in an imperfect tense. In the Hebrew, an imperfect tense means that it is to be understood and translated in the future. So, as we apply that to verse 6, it would mean that the earth has yielded. Excuse me, I'm sorry. So, the phrase has yielded is also in the imperfect tense, but some translations have chosen to treat this in the past tense. Now, because we aren't Hebrew scholars, because we don't understand the Hebrew language, there's a choice that is made to either interpret these verbs, past tense, or in future tense. Some translators have done both, some past and this one, excuse me, some most past, future, and this one in the past. Sorry. Most commentators want to translate this imperfect verb consistently with the rest of the imperfect verbs and make it speak of the future. So this is why, for example, in the NIV, you would read, then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. So it seems to fit consistently with the tone of the psalm as a whole, where it is speaking of a future universal praise of God in all the nations, which is not yet true, and it speaks of the praise of God by those who have been taught His ways and have learned of His salvation. But even in the past tense, being interpreted that way, and in a literal sense, it speaks of a physical blessing. Now, if you remember, as we looked back at Psalm 65, we looked at the harvest psalm, where there was this praise of our God for the abundance of the harvest that has just been completed, there potentially is in mind here the idea of thanking God for His abundant physical blessing. So the abundant blessing is the land in response to the faithful obedience of His people, which was set out for Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, as a reminder... The nation of Israel and other ancient cultures always understood an abundant harvest as a sign of God's blessing and a sign of God's favor. A harvest that was not abundant, that was the result of drought, that would result in famine and hardship, was understood as God's lack of favor or perhaps even God's discipline on them for something that was taking place. So God set out before the nation of Israel in the very beginning of their relationship together, these words in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God says, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. 
Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. So the people who knew the ways of God, the people who obeyed the ways of God, would rightfully expect the physical blessing of God in their life. But because we're looking in a forward sense, we would understand that this isn't limited to a physical to a physical blessing of an abundant harvest. There would also be correctly a spiritual blessing which looks forward to all the nations that will praise God for the blessing of salvation. So as true as this physical promise of blessing was upon, upon the nation of Israel, how much more so is the praise of God for the spiritual blessing that encompasses everything that is a part of the gift of salvation. We are a new creation. We have become the children of God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are forgiven by Him. We are redeemed back to a right standing before Him. We are given an inheritance by God. We have an eternal life with God in heaven. And we could go on and on about the spiritual blessing that is ours because of the grace of God given to us in this gift of salvation. His gift of salvation is the greatest blessing of all and far more significant than any physical blessing you and I could ever know. You and I could have more money in our banks than we or our offspring could ever hope to spend, and it could never ever compare to the richness of the spiritual blessing that God has given to us in our salvation. When the world sees the abundant blessing of joy and peace and purpose lived out by His people as a result of our salvation, then the nations will revere Him or fear Him in the words of the psalmist. The bottom line is this. People watch what we do and they listen to what we say. They're always looking and they're always listening even when we're not aware that they are. If you don't think that's true, why do you think advertisers spend billions of dollars every year marketing their product before you? And just because the product might not really capture your attention, if a celebrity becomes an endorser of that product, we go, ooh, Shaquille O'Neal likes that. It must be really good. Well, Jennifer Aniston purports that. It must be the best. Some rapper, some musician, some actor, some somebody might endorse this product. That must be really good because people are watching and they're listening and what they hear and see makes a difference. If you don't believe that's true, you don't have to look any further than the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, there are at least 28 specific references to the increase of the church as a result of the lives of the redeemed being lived out amongst a lost 
and perverse generation who knew nothing of the true knowledge or the ways of God. The apostles were teaching and preaching. They were healing and God was doing mighty things through them. And as we go through the book of Acts, we see the increase to the church in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. Syria and Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth and many other places. And by the time Paul arrives in Thessalonica, he and the other apostles were accused of upsetting the entire world. What did Jesus say? You will be my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, in Jerusalem, to the remotest parts of the world. You are His witnesses. We are His witnesses. People are watching and people are listening. And when God is truly at work, doing a life-changing, restorative work in our lives, others are going to see it and they will be drawn to the grace of God that they see in us and they will come to praise Him as they come to know the true God and enjoy the great gift of salvation that is expressed to us through our true knowledge of Him. Let me ask you this question. If you and I don't speak of the greatness of God in our little piece of the world, who's going to do it? It might be just your family. It might be just a small group of friends. It might be in a larger environment within the work world. But God has given us an audience in our little corner of the world. And if we aren't speaking the truth about who God is, and if we aren't communicating the ways of salvation to them, if we aren't living out the joy and significance of a redeemed life, who is going to do it in our absence? Do we want to see the abundant blessing of salvation spread into the lives of those who don't know God? Do we want to see the praise of God grow amongst the nations as they come to know who He is and as they come to accept what it is that He offers to them? You know, you and I live in a very insulated world. I think we often live our lives completely oblivious to what our lives might be like had we never Known the truth about God. Don't we take that for granted? You and I might look at the lives of people in in our little world. And we say that person would never, ever come to Christ. I guarantee you. I absolutely guarantee you. If you knew me as a 15 year old boy you would have never, ever guessed for a moment that I would ever become a Christian. Far much less that I would ever become a minister of the gospel. We underestimate the power of God. We underestimate the impact of the salvation that we know and the way God might choose to use that in the lives of other people around us. The psalmist is looking forward to a day when all the nations will praise him. And my friend, that day is going to come. 
God is going to pull the plug on this world as we know it. And everything is going to be made new. And we will rest in His presence with joy unspeakable for all eternity. And we should want to bring others with us. Father, would you give to us a greater desire to live a life that reflects the worthiness of the praise that comes as a result of our salvation. Father, forgive us for our our indifference. Forgive us for our our insensitivity to the lost. Father, forgive us for just not caring. God, I pray that as your mercy is made new in our hearts with each day, I pray that you would remind us that your mercy needs to be known in the hearts of those who are far from you. You can do that. And I pray, Father, that you would choose to use us in that process. God, you're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of all that we have to offer. We pray that we would be faithful to make your ways, to make your salvation known in this world that so desperately needs to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.